afternoon and welcome to the 107th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I have a public health update with Esther Chernak and a discussion of COVID-19 in Italy with Giuseppe Farino. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 18th, 2020, there are 21,974,080 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 21,755,069 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,469,444 are in the United States. That's up from 5,416,639 yesterday. There are now a total of 171,343 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 170,194 reported yesterday, yet another day, with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As of now, in Italy, there are 35,405 deaths reported from COVID-19. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is a news story that appeared in the Washington Post March 16, which was actually the first day that we did COVID calls. And I read this as a, to prepare for my discussion in a little bit with Giuseppe Farino, and also just to show us um, a little bit of the difference that's happened over these, these few months in the way that the pandemic is being reported. The headline is, in an Italian city, obituaries fill the newspaper, but survivors mourn alone. Washington Post by Chico Harlan and Stefano Petrelli, March 16. In the part of Italy hit hardest by the coronavirus, the crematorium has started operating 24 hours a day. Coffins have filled up two hospital morgues and then a cemetery morgue and are now being lined up inside a cemetery church. The local newspaper's daily obituary section has grown from two or three pages to 10, sometimes listing more than 150 names in what the top editor likens to war bulletins. By death toll alone, the coronavirus has landed in the northern province of Bergamo with the force of a historic disaster. But its alarming power goes even further, all but ensuring that death and mourning happen in isolation, a trauma in which everybody must keep to themselves. All across Bergamo, people are being picked up in ambulances, rushed to the hospital and dying in sealed off wards where even their closest relatives are not allowed. Many funerals are taking place with only a priest and a funeral home employee present, while family members face restrictions on gathering, remain in quarantine, or are too sick themselves. So many have died that there is a waiting list for burial and cremation. I think it's worse than a war, said Marta Testa, 43, who is in self-quarantine and whose father died of the virus at age 85. Dad is waiting to be buried, and we are here waiting to tell him goodbye. Other countries are only beginning to grapple with the pandemic's implications and the distance it forces between even the closest people. 
But in Italy, death by lonely death, its full cost is becoming apparent. More than 2,000 people in Italy have died of COVID-19. Once again, this is from a news article dated March 16th. The, the disease caused by the virus, half of them over the most recent five-day stretch, and many of those cases have looked like that of Testa's father, Renzo, a former newspaper advertising executive who felt short of breath a week ago, Saturday, was taken to the hospital and did not see or talk to his family again. Grief is a phase that requires closeness, but our grief has had to come via the telephone, said Testa, whose parents had been married for 50 years, and whose mother also appears to have the virus, but is recovering. Testa's siblings bring food to their mother. Out of precaution, they leave it on her front doorstep. Right now, Testa said, our family is living in a suspended state. As coronavirus cases grow, hospitals in Northern Italy are running out of beds. The people who are dying, memorialized in page after page of Leco di Pagamo, are ex-politicians, electricians, emergency phone operators, priests. Most are in their 70s or 80s. Their short obituaries don't mention the cause of death, but don't need to. 90% the newspaper's editor estimated died because of the coronavirus. Instead, the obituaries have other clues about how much grieving has changed during the emergency. They mention direct transport to the crematorium, a public ceremony at a date to be determined, a funeral held in a strictly private form. The top editor of the newspaper, Alberto Sarasoli, said that Italy is in the middle of a collective tragedy and that the virus is decimating the place where he lives. For a while, he wondered whether the obituaries should be bunched toward the back of the paper to reduce the emotional toll on people reading, but he decided people needed to see what was happening. The names of the dead have been appearing in the middle of the paper, spaced out every other page. These are our great elderly who are dying, he said. That they should go like this, it's deeply unjust. It was in Friday's edition, again, back into the middle of March, where Renzo Testa's name appeared, along with a headshot and a quote from Pope Francis. Below, there were basic details about his family and several more columns with remembrances from his family, noting his dedication to the newspaper, his work with civic groups. He had been healthy before he caught the virus, his daughter said. No underlying conditions, Marta Testa said. We were always thinking dad is strong, he will make it, she said. Of course, hope is the last to go. Okay, we're gonna to turn to our discussion for today and I'm very excited to see uh, repeat guest, uh, Dr. Esther Chernak. And we have a discussion, the first part of COVID calls today about public health. Esther is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health, the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health. And she has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication. Drexel University. Prior to joining Drexel faculty in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years. Esther, great to see you and welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you. Happy to join you today. If you wouldn't mind, could you give us an update on Philadelphia? Sure. So Philadelphia is at a, a pretty stable place at the moment. We had a you know, a lot of cases in March and April. Um, and since April, we've had a steady decline in cases. We've had, I think the total cumulative number of cases since the beginning of the pandemic in Philadelphia is around 32,000. We have around 1,700 deaths total. Uh, the number of daily, new, new daily reported cases has been ranging from 100 to 125. And I think in the last 
week or so, it looks like that's dropped so that it's around between 80 and 100 cases a day. So that's better. And I think our percent positivity positivity is around 3 3.5, 3.8, 4%. That's what it's sort of ranging. So it's not fantastic. It's not less than 1% or 2% like it is in some other parts of the United States, but it's certainly much better than some of the what we call the surge states right now. And I think the goal for the uh, health department is to sort of maintain those gains and, and improve upon them. Um, while fall is, you know, uh, on the, you know, around the corner and with the potential of, of more transmission, both with respect to just weather-related respiratory virus transmission and, you know, universities returning, et cetera. So we'll see what happens. But Philadelphia at the moment is in a relatively good place. We're seeing plenty of cases, but there's hospital capacity to manage those cases, uh, few enough cases so that the health department is launching a contact tracing effort, uh, which generally requires a, a low enough number of cases so that you can actually staff that effort. So I think, I think the hope is that there have been gains and that the health department can capitalize on them. You mentioned the percent positivity rate. Can you say a little bit, bit more kind of public health 101 for me, just to let me know what that what that means? So it's the it's the total number of if you look at all if the denominator is the number of tests that are done for whatever reason surveillance uh, you know diagnostic tests for people who have suspicious symptoms contacts of cases you know we we look at high percentages of that if, if the, we talk about the percent positivity which is the number of tests that are positive of all the tests that are submitted and in this disease the lab the clinical laboratories are actually reporting not just the positive results but also the total number of tests that are performed and health departments are able to calculate a percent positivity. And that's quite useful. It helps us understand something about whether cases are increasing because we're increasing testing, but it also tells, or not, but it also tells us something about um, the, the, you know, the level of disease, the incidence of disease in a community. And in, for example, in some of the surge states, Florida, Arizona, we've seen positivity between 18 and 25 and even 30% in some really hard hit areas. And I think we believe that, you know, numbers below 5% and even numbers below 2 and 3%, you know, tend to correlate with uh, much reduced incidence in the community in a safer, safer community. Is it your sense that anybody who wants a COVID-19 test in Philadelphia today can get it? That's a good question. Um, testing has, access to testing has improved, but it, it's not, I think some of it is just the procedures. Um, a colleague of mine actually called me last week to say she had some respiratory symptoms, wanted to visit her elderly parents who had some health issues and was concerned. And she you know, went to her primary who did not know how to get a test <laughs> and was not able mm -hmm. to test her primary care physician. And she asked me because she knows I still work a little bit at the health department. I tried to get a test for her in some of the networks where I work. It turns out to be there were some barriers there. Um, and it, the, what ends up happening is the city actually operates a website which, which connects you to uh, 15 or more different locations where you can actually register to get a test. And she was able to do that actually within that afternoon. And incredibly, her result came back within 24 hours. So I think that in Philadelphia, you can do it. And it doesn't take that long, but it, it takes a bit to navigate the system to access the test. Um, but that said, I think at the moment, we're actually okay in Philadelphia. I'm hearing in some of the tough states like Florida and Arizona, 
people still wait for hours to get a test and don't know where to go. And there's a real shortage of sort of these local or regional shortage of supplies and reagents that limit access to testing. But in Philadelphia, I think there's sufficient access. And the, the challenge, I think, is if cases surge, maintaining sufficient access to really keep on top of it and not having a huge depletion of resources. I mean, one of the things that happened last month with hmm. the epidemics really spiraling out of control in Arizona and Florida is that there was this nationwide depletion of some really key reagents because of the pressure in those high, high hit states. Just to follow up on, on that, I, it was, it was uh, remember hearing those stories and, and one of the things that was reported is this wild variability in the amount of time it was taking for people to get test results back. And so from your perspective, like what's a viable amount of time within which to receive a test result where it still matters uh, in terms of bringing down, um, you know, the overall impact of COVID-19 in the population? So, I mean, in the perfect world, you'd want to know right away, same day, immediately. I mean, so I think the holy grail for this disease would what we call point of care test, where it'd be like a pregnancy test where you, you know, um, you, you know, you maybe have a respiratory sample, you do a test in your, in your, in your home or in a, in, in some sort of clinical situation and you can get a result within an hour. I mean, that would be the optimal situation. Um, we're not there yet, but I think that's our goal. Uh, what we're using now are these, you know, uh, polymerase chain reaction based tests, these PCR based tests that require relatively sophisticated laboratories uh, and specimens are sent to those labs. And I think, you know, ideally you should get the results in 24 hours, maybe 48. Beyond that, you know, you're talking about a disease with an incubation period of, a, you know, what can be 14 days, but what is usually more like four days, maybe five. And so unless you're mm -hmm. really getting well back in a couple of days, um, you're not going to be able to, you know, use much time to um, identify contacts and prevent infection in those contacts if it's taking you a, as long as the incubation period that is typical uh, just to get the results back. So, I, you know, I think the goal is to get results back within a day or two. And, you know, the, the holy grail, as I said, would be same day. Why not? I mean, that would be optimal. It's amazing to me how much information we're continuing to ask the public to bring in and then evaluate what's valuable or not. So, I mean, if you see something reported in a state that says, oh, well, we can get tests anywhere you want to test in Arizona, it's fine. But without that second piece of information that you've just said, you know, maybe that's not, not so valuable to say, yeah, you can get a test, but if it takes 10 days to get it back, that's not going to have any impact on the overall situation. That um, it doesn't help thinking, yeah, perspective. go ahead. No, I was, I was just saying, it doesn't help from public just, health perspective. So many people have said, you know, to incentivize labs to turn it around quickly, they shouldn't be paid. If the more than 72 hours, don't pay them. I mean, I'm not sure that that has happened yet, but people have talked about using that kind of turnaround time as, as a justification to not pay. I mean, I think, you know, I think you, you need rapid turnaround times for sure. And for some reason, LabCorp, which is one of the larger clinical labs, is for, maybe they've had an infusion of resources or they've ramped up their capacity considerably because they've really turned things around very fast. Um, but these, the lion's share of the diagnostic testing in this country is done by these large national commercial labs, and there's a real variability in test results in terms of turnaround time. I wanted to ask you um, if you could separate the signal from the noise for me a little bit and some of the reporting that's gone on in the last couple of days. And, and context here is we're entering election season. The Democratic National Convention started last night, and um, there was reporting a couple days ago that two 
highly ranked officials, the chief of staff and the deputy chief of staff of the Centers for Disease Control, the Federal Centers for Disease Control uh, and Prevention left this week, Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell, um, after two years on the job. And I don't have any reference point to make sense of how much something like this matters. I mean, I guess if I'd heard that Dr. Fauci was walking away, I would know that was obviously important. But I'm not used to seeing these kinds of officials, their comings and goings reported on. To me, I guess at a sort of basic level, I feel like that's bad. Like they shouldn't be leaving in the middle of this situation. Can you help us understand a little bit what we should think about this? Yeah, I mean, I I saw the article that you shared with me, and I you know I don't work at CDC, and I did not know those people, but the article implied that they were political appointees uh, to administrative positions at CDC. Um, they'd only been there a couple of years. They weren't uh, you know epidemiologists, physicians who've been working in public health for thirty and forty years and driving the response. They were really political appointees, and in fact, I think the article you shared even indicated that the fact that there were political appointees in these administrative chief of staff roles was relatively new for this administration. It's not typical for CDC to have that. CDC is really a science-based organization filled with longstanding federal civil servants who are devoted to the work of public health. Um, so when I saw that, I certainly didn't think that uh, that was a huge blow to CDC's capacity in any way. Maybe they are political appointees who's the writing on the wall that maybe the administration is about to change and they're probably not gonna have jobs a lot longer. It didn't strike me as a major loss for CDC in the way that um, you know, a, a center director or, a, or a, a director of science or a scientific organization who'd been there for many, many years um, would be, uh, you know, that's, I would perceive that to be a major loss, but I, I, didn't, I didn't perceive that with what you had described or with, with, with those two departures. I think they were political appointees who I'm not sure what their role was at CDC. And so I can't say that it was or wasn't a major loss, but they're certainly not on the list of people I know and have worked with for years at mm -hmm. CDC or part of public health response to major public health crises. So, well, thank you for that clarification. I guess the broader context of the question is, is just, you know, I've been trying to pay attention as many have over the last few years of what's going on at, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration or Environmental Protection Agency, you know, when the when the leadership of the administration has, I think it's fair to say, an anti-science perspective or hostile often to science, it's created the difficult dynamics as have been reported in many different science agencies. And we've seen that play out in real time with CDC. And so that, that was part of my question. I guess I have a broader question for you. And it might ask you to speculate a little bit. I hope you're okay with that. But if, if in a situation like this where you have large agencies that are mission-driven, focused on the health of the population, and you have friction between those who do the job, like you said, 20 years, 30 years, and the top, how can somebody from the outside um, assess that things are holding together. I, I worry about that now. We're five months into this and the pressure and the stress of what's happening, and maybe also at the state level in states like Texas and Arizona, Florida, big states that must have people who've also been there for long periods of time, where the top leadership uh, has aligned themselves with the president. So I guess I'm just sort of curious about how you think about this and somebody like me, a layman on the outside, how can I assess whether or not the center is holding 
in these kind of agencies. I'm really worried about unraveling. Yeah, I am too. I do worry greatly that CDC will emerge from this greatly diminished. Um, I mean, there are huge budget issues and CDC um, has not received a lot of money to do this response, which you, you know, I mean, we haven't seen, you know, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic in, in February and March, you saw some of T CDC's top scientists in the world of infectious disease control, Nancy Messonnier and Shukat at press briefings. Um, and, and you saw, you know, Dr. Redfield, who is the CDC director, who is the political appointee. That's always the case. The president appoints the CDC director. Um, but after a while, you, did, you know, they started to say very candidly, this is going to be big. We need to prepare for this. We're going to start. To, they were recommending shutdowns and um, they were quickly muzzled. And you don't see them now. I mean, uh, I'm a person who works in public health and I know those folks for, for having worked in public health for years and I don't see them. Um, you know, and you didn't see Dr. Redfield for many, many months. And then now you see him periodically. Um, and I do think actually, you know, he is a highly regarded public health person, but I think CDC has not been allowed to be front and center in terms of leading this response. Um, you know, what I look for are, would be major departures. And I don't see that. I think people are kind of holding on and hoping that a new administration will treat them more favorably and allow them to occupy the role they should occupy in the context of a major pandemic like this. I think, you know, there are signs of, you know, CDC publishes a weekly report of COVID cases that's excellent and very informative in terms of the U.S. epidemiology. I think a lot of the work it has done um, around control measures, some of which is, you know, is, is targeted towards the public and available on their website is very good and, and really excellent. Um, my suspicion is they've done a lot of stuff that's not seeing the light of day. <laughs> um, and it's kind of hard to know. Um, you know, I, mm. I pay attention to Tom Frieden, who was one of the former CDC directors, um, who's very active on Twitter and also on CNN, and he talks a lot about stuff that's happening at CDC. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm just hopeful. I mean, and I do, I'm actually, full disclosure, I am currently finishing a research project that is funded by CDC and I connect, I'm on, I work with them a fair amount through that project and I'm on, on a number of different activities that are funded by CDC. And it's my sense mm -hmm. that the agency is, is working extremely hard to, to deal with this pandemic and deal with all the other public health things that it does. And it's just kind of holding on. Um, I don't think it's, I think it's in the crossfire now um, in an administration that hasn't valued their response or hasn't valued their work, but they continue to do it. It's just in a way that is probably less prominent than it could be or even should be. Um, but they're doing a lot of stuff. A lot of it, again, is just not being highly regarded. I think there was a big a kerfuffle around the um, move, the, the the transfer of hospital data from CDC's uh, NHSN mm -hmm. um, uh, health infections, health associated infections database from the right. CDC. I remember that. Yeah. Track to a different part of the federal government, and now no one can find anything. Um, you know, it's. I think CDC has gotten caught in politics, which is just a shame, and it should be the front and center agency leading this response. And it's been curious to me just to see, you know, the role that NIH and Dr. Fauci has played. I mean, Dr. Fauci is a brilliant physician scientist and he's an extremely um, skilled communicator. And it's not surprising to see him, you know, as a, as a national spokesperson. But I don't think people realize that he's, you know, his, you know, he's not the nation's lead epidemiologist. He's the nation's lead physician scientist for infectious diseases. And it is his job and his agency's job 
to you know, study and accelerate the arrival of new pharmaceuticals and new therapeutics and new vaccines. I mean, that's what NIH does. It's research. Um, um, it's not the health epidemiology response. And I don't think the public even realizes that. I'm not even sure the, the White House realizes what the difference yeah, is. Probably not. I have enormous respect for Dr. Fauci. I'm an ID doc from way back, and he's always the keynote speaker at our professional meetings. And his his command of the science is extraordinary. His vision for the future is extraordinary. You want to see him in the job he's in. And, and it's not surprising to me that we are really in a great place when it comes to potentially approving new vaccines and all that. I mean, that's his shop. That's what he does. Um, but I don't think people realize that you know the NIH's role is not to lead the outbreak response. That's CDC's role, and I don't think people even realize that, given the way the agency's been so sort of suppressed and, and diminished. But that said, yeah. I think people are there. I think they're working. I think they're tracking cases. I think they're doing what they do. I think a lot of that work is just not seeing the light of day. Thank you for giving us that that overview. Um, and I want to I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking right now with Esther Chernak, uh, getting a public health update on COVID-19. And and I want to um, get one more question in for you, Esther. And it's um, related to uh, the schools. Um, we won't have time to do this topic. It, it's full justice. But I was just reading today, University of North Carolina, twenty thousand student population of that, basically a quarter uh, returned to campus and within a week, 177 COVID-19 cases in four um, cluster events. And so they've closed. Um, can you make sense of this for us? Just again, like what should we be paying attention to in a story like that? I mean, it, it looked bad, but then the chancellor of the UNC system said, hey, I, I was committed to trying and we tried it. There was this almost a sort of a can-do sense, but there's also been an enormous amount of anxiety from parents, students, and faculty about whether or not something was predictable, obvious, why did you need to do it? There's so much to work with here, but I guess I want to sort of get a, a beginning of a sense of what you think about this case. So I think that, um, I mean, it's certainly it a worrisome touchstone for those of us in higher education and its institutions that are grappling with this question of whether to open or not. I think, you know, the two the two biggest issues or concerns in higher education, I think, if we're going to talk about, you know, schools, there's, I mean, there's a lot, lots of topics with respect to schools, K-5, IHE, Institutes of Higher Education. But I think the two issues in mm -hmm. colleges and universities are that you have um, you, know, you have campuses that have you know, student residences. And so you have students living in close quarters and dormitories, uh, sharing bathrooms, sharing bedrooms, uh, sharing living rooms, really living on top of each other, uh, often um, you know, taking meals in common dining halls. And you know, people have referred to dorms as like mini cruise ships. I mean, these are places that are gonna foster transmission. 
Um, and the other, the other factors I think in universities that are concerning is that, you know, particularly universities that have substantial on-campus residential housing tend to be uh, universities where people come from around the country to attend school. And so you have, you know, a, an epidemic that is raging in the United States right now with many, many states, more than half of the 50 states have numbers that are increasing. If you look at the CDC map, um, there's not a lot of green states. They're all, they're all yellow and orange. Yeah, red, right, which right. signify actual transmission. So you have, you know, 20 something you know, year olds, um, men and women coming from across the country from places where there's significant transmission and they may have a test that's done before they arrive, but that's a moment in time. Um, and then they all get together and they're living in close quarters and there's a lot of parties going on. My recollection of the UNC, um, um, events right now is those four clusters that you described, I think three of those four are dorms and one is a fraternity or a sorority. So those are all conditions that unsurprisingly, you know, promote close contact of a very easily transmitted respiratory virus. And, you know, one of the things that was notable is that the percent positivity when they, when they tested everybody on arrival, and I think three, 2.8% of the tests were positive and one week later, 13.6% of the tests are positive. And, uh, you know, so in one week they had dramatic transmission and, you know, you had probably a combination of unrecognized cases on arrival. You had, you know, young people living cl in close quarters without, you know, protective measures. And, it, and to be fair, I think in some of those quarters, it's impossible to take sufficient protective measures, just given the, the dynamics of dormitory life. And so, you know, you have, uh, you have a situation that's ripe for transmission. And I think the, you know, it's a cautionary tale for universities around the country who look at UNC and UNC, they did it right. They had baseline testing. They had a plan for surveillance testing. I think I read today, they actually had dorms in I think 40 to 60% capacity. It wasn't full, you know, full capacity. They right. had more than 75% of their curriculum virtual and here they are. <laughs> and uh, they are, we mm -hmm. had a fair amount of resources devoted to this. So I think it's a cautionary tale. And I think um, I suspect universities in our region who are still struggling with this are, are taking heed of the UNC experience. Mm -hmm. Let me turn then to maybe the harder uh, question because uh, K through 12 represents an enormously complex and variable group of uh, needs of students. So. Let's turn to that now. And the last time we talked, you were really, we were going into some depth about the kinds of things that you thought, first of all, you were underlining how important you thought it was that students needed to be back in school, it's if not, possible. Sure, particularly younger yeah, kids. K through I mean, particularly elementary. Five. Yeah, so we shouldn't use the higher education experience as a proxy necessarily for what's possible with K through 12. I think the dynamics are different. I think the big, I mean, you don't have, unless you're talking about situation, you know, you're talking about, you know, I think the epidemiology of the local community needs to drive those decisions. And I think the biggest thing as, as you know, K through 12 schools across the US open is what's the incidence of cases and transmission in local communities. And I think in communities like in some in New England, um, New York very, very, really controlled transmission, low percentage positivity. Um, they're, they're, I think that it's safest. I think those are communities where it's safe to open with additional kinds of measures in place to prevent transmission mm -hmm. should 
change. I think in states where there, where the epidemiology is is less permissive, meaning there's more transmission in the communities, um, I think it's it's probably not safe to do it. And I think, you know, the, in my mind, the conditions that would make it safe for a, uh, an elementary or you know middle school K through eight, K through, you know K through five, K through eight, uh, even maybe a high school to open would be. Uh, low low incidence in the community. I mean, probably one two percent, really low, and then really aggressive safeguards in a school, universal masking, everybody, every kid, every mm -hmm. staff, faculty member, and then doing what you can to really minimize social contact within the school. So maybe you have multiple shifts in a day and more teachers per class, so you have kids in a classroom and you have just you know canceled, you know, you cancel assemblies and this and that that would promote interactions, um, but you do what you can to really minimize, um, you know, physical contact between students and staff within the school and you mask. Masking is universal. You do things to promote hand washing. You separate students so there's not a lot of physical contact. Um, and then, and you do that the whole time, you're carefully assessing the epidemiology of the disease in the local community because as that rises the likelihood of it being introduced into the school is going to increase and that's going to be the game changer so you know right now for example on on television there's lots of people talking about this and there's a, um, a reporter on cnn dr sanjay gupta who is the uh, medical he lives in georgia he's not sending his kids back to school one of the reasons for that is there's a lot of disease in georgia and he doesn't feel safe uh, there's another reporter who's another uh, commentator who's, I think, the head of the school of public at Brown, Dr. Ja, who lives in Massachusetts. He's sending his kids to school. And what he says is it's because our disease numbers are really, our cases, our case counts are low in this state. And the schools are also taking additional precautions, you know, to identify cases should they occur in the, in the, in the community and to prevent transmission within the school should a case or two slip through. So you need all of the factors. You need big investments in the school. But you also need low case numbers in the surrounding community. And there's a lot of, you know, successful um, schools that have opened across Europe and in parts of, um, and well, maybe your next guest can share some of this with us, but, you know, parts of Scandinavia, some of the Scandinavian countries have done this. Germany has done this. There's places that have done it well, and it's in the context of low transmission in the community and then real efforts to to minimize physical physical contact in the school with students, with students and staff and students and faculty. Um, in my mind, I think I said this on your last show, it would have been a great excuse to finally give schools the resources they need for teaching <laughs> um, and really improve staff-teacher ratios, student-teacher ratios, and yep. um, you know, build really an infrastructure that post-pandemic would be a great infusion of cash and resources into public education. We're not there yet in this country, it seems to me. We're not there yet. Um, I guess my my last sort of thought, just to hitch on to that. There's another factor here, which has been in play from the beginning, which is just stress. And, mm -hmm. you know, nothing gets a community more agitated in, in excited ways and hopeful ways, but also in concerned ways than the shared health of what goes on in their schools. And this is not just a small town or rural thing. This is in big cities too. And so I'm just trying again to be attentive to the kind of pressures and stresses that we're putting on everybody from principals and teachers and school nurses to local public health officials who are going to, in many cases, have to make the same kind of very tough call that they made back in March and April, which is, look, we're going to disrupt learning in the middle of 
in the middle of the school year, those are hard messages to to deliver. I mean, you have a lot of experiences in public health and public as a science communicator. How can they prepare for those difficult discussions? Uh, I mean, you what mean kind of things can can just thinking in terms of of how to lessen bring the stress down as we're going through this period of time, how the science communicators can, even though it's a tough call, how to make it slightly better so people's stress level is not through the roof. Because I'm privy to emails and conversations all the time, as are you. People are just really stressed to the max. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do, I mean, there's so many things that are at play, right? I think Parents are stressed because they want their kids to be safe, but they're stressed because they can't get any work done because their kids are home and, and school is childcare. Exactly. Um, that's a huge issue. And I think, you know, I think we're still learning so much about this disease and there's still lear we're learning every day about the transmission characteristics in, in kids and the disease consequences in kids. I mean, there's, you know, we believe that it's less, you know, severe than it is in adults, um, but we certainly know kids can get very ill. And I think every day, the, as more cases occur, we're seeing a more a, a wider spectrum of illness that suggests that this isn't really a benign condition all the time for children. There is a lot of conflicting data around the transmissibility in children. Um, you know, there was a study that came out in the last couple of weeks from Korea indicating that certainly kids older, you know, between 10 and 21 were big transmitters of the disease, whereas before we didn't think they were. Now there's some retraction of those data. But the bottom line is we're not learning. We don't, we're still learning about this every single day and yet we're trying to make decisions with incomplete data incomplete science um, and I think what schools can do is just try to be completely upfront about the data they are current that they're using to make with which you know that they're using to make decisions and to sort of explain the reasoning to folks I mean you know you can't please everyone and there are people that are going to be upset that you're closed and doing things virtual and there's people that are going to be upset that you're um, that you're open and uh, <laughs> and putting your children right. at risk. And I think schools are trying to accommodate, you know, families. And I'm seeing almost a dichotomy. There's lots of public schools that are that have elected to be closed, and lots of private schools that are open. And some of maybe that's mm -hmm. because they have um, the ability to to you know have resources that enable them to. Uh, improve physical, you know, distance in the classroom, purchase masks, whatever. I'm not sure about the reasons, but I'm certainly seeing a dichotomy where private schools are opening, public schools are not. Um, mm. and, and I think there's a, just a lot of confusion, like what are the principles behind upon which we should or should open schools? And I think, you know, the heavy pressure from the federal government, open, 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 is is contributing to some of that confusion because it's not allowing people to sort of understand, you know, what are the conditions under which opening a school is safe, what do we need to do? There is no playbook yet in Los Angeles, I read, and I'm not sure how they're paying for this. They're going to be testing uh, kids and, and teachers in public schools in Los Angeles on, a, on some sort of surveillance basis. That's ideal. You would want to do surveillance testing. And I think, you know, CDC has not recommended surveillance testing for colleges, even though I think most colleges have decided you need to do it because we have too much asymptomatic not to. Um, but we still don't have a playbook that we're all using yeah. that's consistent. And I think that contributes to confusion and I think fear and anger. Well, I'm gonna to have to ask you to come back as I have many times, uh, maybe in about a month, and we're gonna have so much more to discuss even then because all the universities will have gone through whatever they're gonna go through. 
and schools across the country are going to go through it too. Esther Chernak, always learn so much when we talk. Thanks a lot for making time to come on COVID calls today. Happy to have joined. Okay, I'm going to turn to my second guest and Giuseppe Farino. Happy to Hello. have him on today. Hi, Giuseppe. Let me in introduce you. Uh, Giuseppe is Senior Research Associate at the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of East Anglia in the UK. He's Italian and a human geographer by background, working at the intersection of society and disaster risk management, including disaster risk and response, climate change adaptation, socioeconomic impact assessment, community action policy and governance dimensions. His areas of expertise are Italy and Australia with recent interests in research in Ecuador and Vietnam. He has a global research purview. Giuseppe is the editor of the book, Governance of Risk, Hazards and Disasters, Trends in Theory and Practice, which came out in Rutledge with Rutledge in 2018 with Lena Calandra and Sarah Bonani. Giuseppe, thanks for coming on COVID calls today. Hello, thanks for, for having me at this call. And thanks for staying up late. And I want to remind people that you can get your questions in uh, to YouTube Live. You can just put them in the YouTube Live chat or you can get them in via Twitter. Just be sure to tag at U US of Disaster or you can email them to me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. Giuseppe, let me start our conversation the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is there right now. Yeah, okay, well, uh, I back in Italy, I came back in Italy last week, so uh, currently I, I am in my hometown, that is uh, Monteforte Pino, which is a small town of 10,000 people in the Apennine Hills of the Campania region, so it's almost uh, one hour driving from Naples and from the Amalfi Coast, so it's, um, it's one of the municipalities of the Avellino province, um, so in the Campania region, and um, actually we have zero cases. I think uh, from the start of the pandemic, we just had six cases, um, almost with no people in ICU. So we were quite lucky. Uh, the whole province had almost uh, 600 cases with uh, some deaths. Um, so yes, this is the this is the situation right now. I think later we can talk about the situation in Italy. So yeah. And you've been, throughout these last months, you've been uh, traveling a bit, right? Most of us have been in one place, well, you've been in yeah, several places. Yeah. yeah, well, I was in fieldwork in Ecuador, and then I got stuck due to you know, the, lock, the pandemic in Ecuador. Then I was able to come back in Italy with an international flight. Anyway, it was a very long flight and long story that is really difficult to hear to summarize. And then I came back, in, well, I was in my hometown after Ecuador for a couple of months. Then I came back to UK, but then I decided also to get back here to Italy just to check my parents, my sister and whatever. So yes, I traveled a little bit uh, doing self-isolation. I did uh, two self-isolation once when I came back from Ecuador to Italy and once when I came back in the UK from Italy. And of course, trying to keep social distancing and all these kind of uh, measures to cope with the virus. Now, let me um, ask you, you know, at the top of the of the call today, I read this article that had appeared in the Washington Post, and um, it was from March, and in fact, it was from the first day I did COVID calls, and I was just so taken with it, uh, the world that it describes, the surprise, 
the superlatives that it uses, the uh, talking about the obituaries and those various things. I just was wondering what your reaction was to that. And I know it's a, it was a different, different part of Italy from where you are now, but yeah, um, yeah. it almost, like almost seems like a lost world now, that march, doesn't it? Yes, well, of course, it's a, it's a very complex matter and, and everyone has its, his or her own, own reaction. Actually, I was in the UK and uh, when, you know, the pandemic, the strong pandemic started in Italy, let's say mid-February. So at that time, you know, also the, the, the situation in the UK was not considered so severe than after, unfortunately, it was probably se severer than Italy. So uh, I was worried, of course. Um, I was mainly worried also, you know, also about my family, my parents, my, my, my relatives and my friends in southern Italy. But of course, I have friends across Italy and I was regularly in touch with, uh, with my friends and relatives in the most affected regions. Uh, Bergamo, the, the province of Bergamo and the Lombardy, the Lombardy region was for sure one of the, probably one of the global clusters because the Lombardy region has, uh, uh, has from March, from February to now, 19, uh, sorry, 97,000 cases. So almost 50% of the Italian cases. So I can imagine the shock. Uh, and Bergamo was for sure one of probably the biggest cluster in Italy together with Milan and Brescia in, the, in that region. Um, and um, yes, the, 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 it, it looks, for those who never experienced the war, like me, it looked like, uh, you know, sort of war. Of course, it was, you know, war is completely different, but, you know, the, the sensation was, was, uh, was that. And, um, uh, yeah, we were, we were all worried and were all, were all shocked. And, you know, now uh, Bergamo is really trying to, uh, to overcome the grief and the, and the mourning, but uh, it will take time. And of course, the memory will be, will be something very, very important. I think that entire generations of um, elder people have been lost in some of the villages of the Bergamo province, where probably 10% of, of the people have been affected in some, in some, in some villages. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and you know, I have, this evening I had, a, I had a, a friend who lived in Brescia, which is close to Bergamo. Uh, for dinner, I had uh, yeah, I had a friend who came here for dinner, and he's from from Brescia, and he told me that all you know for all the uh, hardest time of the coronavirus, there were ambulances going in and out, in and out. So you can imagine this sound landscape of ambulances going in and out for 24 hours, and even though you try to keep safe at home, you you know, you can imagine how your uh, emotions and your feelings are in those moments. So, and I just want to add, uh, um, yeah, because the, the article were, was talking about the Leco di Bergamo, that is, let's say, one of the, the, the Journal of Bergamo. Mm -hmm. And actually, we have some recent statistics about the, these uh, obituaries because uh, International, that is an Italian magazine, covered very well the post pandemic, or let's say, the um, uh, the response to the pandemic in Bergamo, and actually, the, um, uh, I'm just reading. I'm just reading the article now, and says that from 30 of April to the 3rd of June, they the Leco di Bergamo did a sort of memorial on the facade 
of the of of uh, of the of the journal uh, of the building of the journal where they were projecting the obituaries and the and the pictures of the people who died because of coronavirus and they ended up with probably almost uh, 5000 people so you can imagine uh, uh, one one yeah probably 40 days of you know this facade with uh, obituaries and with pictures and people was bringing flowers and mourning uh, you know the the death um, so it's uh, you know it's a very interesting idea of you know about the memories and how to cope with the grief uh, also into public spaces so for sure there there is a sort a lot of post traumatic stress disorder and because people wasn't able to you know, to say goodbye to the people who died because right. the people who died in ICU died alone so there has never been time to you know to elaborate the the, the grief so i think that we will need a lot of time and the same is for uh, health services workers that of course they worked under stress for months and they you know, they experienced a lot of pressure so yeah this uh, this will take a lot of time and uh, there will be a lot of stress to cope with in the next uh, in the next years for sure it's not to say that it's over in italy by any stretch um, but it's interesting, as you pointed out, that there's a sort of memorial phase that's been engaged. And in fact, in the news, um, the recent news stories have already tried to do some sense making about what to take away from the Italian case. I just want to read a couple lines from a story that appeared in The New York Times, July 31st. Um, this is the, maybe we call the success story narrative. Uh, according to The Times, after a stumbling start, Italy has consolidated. The rewards of a tough nationwide lockdown through a mix of vigilance and painfully gained medical expertise this week, so this is the very end of July, Parliament voted to extend the government's emergency powers through October 15th after the Prime Minister argued the nation could not let its guard down because the virus is still circulating. Can you interpret that story for us? Is that actually representative of the way um, public opinion is working in Italy? Is it viewed somehow at this stage as a as a success story? Well, it's, uh, you know, I don't think there is any success story everywhere in the world because the fact that the pandemic occurred yeah. is already a sign that we failed. We failed as a, a scientific community. We failed as humanity. We failed, uh, you know, in our interaction with, with nature. So this is the most important thing to say. The second thing is that, of course, uh, there was a sort of successful story that is the way that the prime minister Conte was able to manage uh, this, uh, to manage the, this, uh, this pandemic with a sort of calm, uh, with a sort of quiet attitude, uh, but also with, uh, uh, you know, responding, for example, to, to Europe and asking for, for money and for support. Um, I'm not a fan at all of, uh, uh, I'm, not a I'm not a fan at all of the, of the prime minister, but for sure, I, I, I think that the fact that he was considered, well, that Italy was considered a successful story is just because was probably the first, you know, Western country to experience this. Of course, I have to say that at the beginning, there were a lot of, you know, bad stereotypes, also mainstream press about Italy. You know, Italy wasn't, uh, wasn't prepared or, you know, they, we are the, usually people who don't don't take this uh, very serious 
particularly from France, from the UK, also from also from, from from the US. It was a sort of uh, match, well, not a match, a, a sort of uh, game between who was better than other. You know, actually, the the way to the way to cope with this pandemic is to cope together. So not to say I am better than you or you are better than me. So it's just doing things together. So, um, so I don't think there is a success story in the sense that, as I mentioned before, the fact that the court is already signed that we failed. The Guardian uh, was able to find that Italy didn't have a pandemic plan, uh, but probably very few countries have a head or pandemic plan that was updated. So this for sure is a failure. However, there are a lot of other failures. And uh, uh, well, I, I have a, I have a long list, but um, for sure the health the health system, which is which is still very good because it's really it's really public health system. Um, it's uh, was performing relatively well, but just because of the uh, healthcare uh, workers that worked. Uh, extra hours without complaining and doing their job in the most effective way with scarce with scarce limited resources because what we have to say is that since 20 years uh, the health system is going through uh, through a cut of funds uh, for hospital for equi equipment so a lot of people was complaining that they didn't have masks and gloves and mm -hmm. Uh, there were thousands of healthcare workers that got infected and hundreds of them died. So this is not a Sussex story because when you cannot protect those who are supposed to protect you, this means that you are not doing well. The other, the other problem in terms of protection is that the Italian government did not think at all about the most vulnerable people. We had poor, we had families, families with abuse, particularly women. We have people with disabilities and their families. We have uh, you know, temporary workers, people with no jobs, uh, people with temporary jobs, people with no, with no formal jobs. All these people <clears throat> never had any form of protection. So for example, POOCs, there has been a lot of solidarity networks, you know, local associations, um, uh, yeah, local associations and informal networks. However, there has not been there has not been a plan for you know bringing food to more people to homeless. So all these discourses have been completely neglected within the mainstream press, but also to, you know, also within our Italian press. So this must be considered as a failure because if we are not able to protect the most vulnerable people. A lot of people with disability that are at home, for example, they cannot receive nurses at home because of course they could not go to visit them because of the pandemic, because they were forced to stay at home. So the families were in trouble and in, the, in difficulties. So we must consider all these issues when we talk about the pandemic, not just, well, how can I say, the health, con the, the health system performance is crucial. However, there are a lot of other issues that should be considered. And for me, there is also a problem of communication. <clears throat> for example, the government has not been able to communicate with, uh, uh, you know, with, to establish a sort of targeted strategy for different people. 
teenagers that were forced to stay at home and to do, you know, this sort of smart, you know, how to say social um, uh, remote learning that for them was new, well, was new for all the school and school and university environment. But a lot of people weren't able to access to to internet, for example, and to the computer, to the lessons. So um, there was no strat no communication strategy for this. There was no communication strategy for, for example, for children, for people with uh, 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 visual and uh, hearing impairment, with people with disability, with migrants who don't speak Italian, and we have a lot of people from from uh, particularly from Africa, but also from from. From the Middle East that don't, don't speak don't speak Italian. Those are all issues that should be considered. But probably for me, the biggest failure is something that is absolutely neglected, particularly the international press, because it's mainly a national issue that you don't know unless you are you are not Italian. It is the fact that the pandemic was managed very badly, in particularly in northern, in some region in the north Italy, because the, they did a shutdown, shut down the main industries, the large industries that are mainly in the northern Italy. Why? Because not just political elite, but also financial elite and Confindustria, that is the Italian association for Italian association for uh, 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 Italian industrial association. They have a lot of power and influence at the political level in these regions, and they were able to, you know, to lobby the regions to not shut down the main industries. And so now, so the, I don't know exactly the percentage, but workplaces together with families and together with all the residential homes have been some of the places, have been probably the places where you had the most, most of the cases and most of the transmission. The last is the, the, the management of the, all of the elder uh, residential homes that were clusters of cases because, they, of course, they are all people, uh, probably they are underfunded, they are private, so, to, so they try to maximize the, right. to maximize the, yeah, the, the income without providing support to, to the people. So there was no control of this from the government. And this has been really a tragedy because in some in some uh, homes, probably 50, 60 percent of the people got infected, and also the nurses. So, how can we really talk about uh, success about the success of this story if there are all these issues that uh, didn't work? So, yeah, those are just some of them. So. Thank you for that. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and talking now with Giuseppe Farino and just what an important, you know, sketching out that spectrum and showing again how we're failed by looking at these kind of dashboards where we can say, oh, well, it's it's better or worse than it was. But but the need, as you've described, to go into these quite specific sectors in the population, many of which, as you've laid out 
um, reflect underlying tensions in society of long standing. And, and with that in mind, I wanted to just sort of follow up on one part of what you said, a lot in there, but, but one of which is, is this issue of, um, you know, inequalities in society that were already apparent. Yeah, um, migrant workers, for example, or people living on fixed incomes or in rural areas. Has that led, can you already see any kind of political formation around that? I mean, was that disturbing enough to people, maybe even people living in other parts of the country, that that has now moved up in terms of broader national political discussion? Well, for well, it's a very complicated story because politics in Italy is very complicated. So, for example, during the summer, you know, the, 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 what is very curious about Italy is that we always needed to find a scapegoat, someone to blame for this, uh, for the, uh, the spread of the virus. So at the beginning of the pandemic, where the, the people who was running just to stay fit, you know, even though they were not allowed to go out. So I understand that, but I also understand that they needed to go out. So at the beginning, they were. And then there were uh, Romani people from, you know, the Rome from Romania, so they are these nomadic people. And then there were the poor people. And then there were people who left uh, the northern Italy to move to the south because they were people with, uh, you know, they were young students, probably people with no uh, enough money that moved came back at home uh, in the south. Or in the summer, the political propaganda was that migrants were bringing the virus in Italy. So uh, during the summer, well, of course, we have, huge, we have a large agricultural sector, uh, and uh, uh, most of this agricultural sector, unfortunately, is uh, it's just uh, made of uh, exploitation of uh, people from uh, Eastern Europe and from Africa. Um, the good thing, well, um, it's a couple of years, well, it's some years that these, uh, uh, these people working in the, in, the agricultural, in the agricultural sector, informally working in the agricultural sector and literally treated like beasts, they are trying to gather together to bring their voice in the political arena. Um, in the last couple of months, there has been some, uh, there have been a sort of um, street uh, gathering of these people. So I think now, there are, now they have created a sort of union. So um, this is one of the attempts. Uh, unfortunately, Italy is very good in, you know, cleaning up uh, this kind of informal uh, initiatives. So let's see how things will go. But probably um, vulnerable, vulnerable people remain vulnerable because, of course, they have long-standing mm. structural issues. Um, and so if it was difficult for them to emerge, let's say in normal time, we cannot ask them to emerge in these pandemic times. Uh, however, if to respond to your question, I think that probably the the informal workers in the agricultural sector are the ones that probably are trying to bring back, uh, well, not to bring back, to let emerge their political political voice. And we'll see what happens in the next uh, months and years. So. It's always, as you said, you know, Italian politics is, is complicated and even further complicated by the continental politics 
that have been going on. And I've talked with people on COVID calls from France and, and Sweden and the UK and, and Italy um, and other parts of, of the continent. Um, I know early on there was um, discussion of the EU's, the European Union's role here, the need for aid, um, all kinds of, you know, reopening discussions about um, what has sometimes been seen as a heavy-handed EU set of economic policies towards Southern Europe. Where, what's the status of, of that now, if you can summarize? Again, I know it's complicated, but how are Italians, if there's any consensus, feeling about the way that the EU, and I guess what we're really talking about here is Paris and Berlin, how they have treated Italy in the midst of this pandemic? Uh, well, um, well, of course, you have a lot of uh, nationalism that I don't want to talk about this because it's really uh, one thing is nationalism, one thing is you know being critical about uh, geopolitics and and uh, yeah, I'm not uh, a geopolitics expert, but of course I am uh, uh, Italian and I am European citizen and I also live abroad, so I know. Uh, the stereotypes that are uh, uh, that usually exist for Italians, but generally for for the peaks of Southern Europe, you know, the Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. So we are right. the peaks of, of of the Europe. So there are a lot of stereotypes, but of course, uh, uh, you know, the people who talk about us very often don't don't talk about their uh, their skeleton in their in their wardrobe, how to say so. Um, I think that we are all on the same boat, and of course, Southern Italy has structural. Southern Europe has structural problems uh, that are not just well, that are not just related to corruption and uh, and to uh, to bad politics, but have long-standing have long-standing issues. So, usually, because the rhetoric, particularly of the, of the Italian right, with uh, Salvini, with Matteo Salvini and the Lega, has been always critical. Um, critical in uh, critical with the Europe, but just to say, okay, we need to leave Europe. We need to leave the euro more, uh, coin or currency or you know all this kind of, of stuff. Uh, there has been it, this is the kind of sentiment that part of Italy of Italy expresses. Um, then of course there is probably a more rational part that is critical with Europe because we are critical of Europe also before the pandemic because of course. This is not the Europe of the United People, it's just the Europe of the United Finance. So we need to create a better Europe and to stay together without, without imaginary enemies. So, um, of course, there was this dichotomy or this contrast between the, the I don't know how do you say, Saikada countries that were the countries of Southern Europe and the so-called frugal countries particularly the Netherlands and, uh, and Germany and also, and also France. Anyway, now uh, European Union has prepared the plan for recovery plan. So they are giving um, subsidies and, and loans. Uh, so they should, uh, they, should co they should give a sort of what, what is called recovery fund to Italy that we, I think Italy will have almost 20% of the whole recovery of the whole um, money for the recovery fund, for the recovery plan, that are um, about 80 uh, billion of subsidies and uh, 270 billion for, uh, uh, as loans. 
those loans should be then given should be given back. Uh, I think 2027. Uh, of course, Italy need to prepare a plan for having this money uh, and to promote to promise some reforms in the health sector, job sector, or whatever. Now, uh, what will happen? Uh, uh, I don't know. Also, because we are still in the emer um, emergency state until 15 of October. So I think that things should be discussing to the parliament, not with, uh, you know, not in an emergency state. Yeah. So, uh, luckily, Europe is giving us uh, this money. I don't know, you know, Italy is full of surprises, so I cannot, I uh, really don't have any glass uh, uh, ball to, to tell you what will happen, because everything can happen in Italy in mm -hmm. 10 days. So... Um, uh, yes, but we should have this money and uh, we should propose a plan to let them understand how to understand how to use this, uh, uh, this money. So, and the sentiment, uh, um, I don't know, of course, the fact that you, what, you know, one thing is the subsidy and one thing is the loan, because then you have to give back the loan. And uh, right. of course, it can be considered sort of slavery to the European Union. Um, because also Greece, Greece had the same, uh, uh, you know, had this more or less the same pattern. So um, it's not. Uh, so the sentiment is always uh, a little bit divided. You know, someone who there is people who really thank Europe, people who really criticize Europe, but probably the, the the good position is in the middle. So okay, we want a better Europe, but we need to to remain critical uh, again well, to, with this current. Ask this current pattern of the European Union, which is just a union of uh, finance and not of people. So that um, that third rail, I mean, the, the, you you described it very clearly, and this tension between subsidy and loans that has often been a third rail of uh, global disaster recovery from the IMF and the United Nations and other you know instruments of disaster recovery that. Sometimes those loans come with, uh, they come with a lot of expectations um, and they do lock countries into certain trajectories of development. And this has been very well uh, documented. Yeah. Um, that, and that can lead to a sort of period of time in the recovery that actually builds bad feelings. And, and actually it doesn't, the recovery is not complete, but it creates cascading governmental problems yeah. down the down the line, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes, yeah. And um, for example, just to, probably because they, the government didn't know what to tell for this recovery fund because it's also summer, so usually August is the, the time when Italy goes for holiday or, you know, don't, don't want to care too much about politics. So for example, they were talking about using part of this money to build the famous uh, bridge on the Messina Strait, that is, I don't know if you know very well, the, but anyway, it should be a bridge that should um, connect the Sicily, the island of Sicily, with the Italy, so with the Calabria. And of course, this is uh, this uh, bridge uh, is this bridge is uh, is a mantra that is repeated in every electoral campaign for almost fifty years. So when you don't know what to say, you say this. Because it's a sort of okay. I don't know what to say. I say this: that is a considered a crucial infrastructure for 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 yeah, Italy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, even though it's not a crucial infrastructure, because 
Sicily doesn't have still a good railway system, so how can you have a, a bridge for connecting streets and railway if the, the Sicily system is not good? But also, it's it's a, a mobile is a, is a very seismic region, so there will be a lot of problems, and it's a very uh, interesting question also for disaster risk reduction. So, of course, probably they were trying, I don't know if they were trying to diverge the, um, the discourse about the things but when you talk about the, the bridge on, on Sicily State in Italy, this means, well, usually this means that politicians don't know what to say. This is, uh, this is the, the reality. So what will happen with the recovery fund? We don't know. Probably, actually, I don't know for sure. We'll be discussing in the next months. So. Let me, um, Giuseppe, let me, well, for, let me remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Giuseppe Farino about COVID-19 situation in Italy, but I want to broaden the discussion a little bit. And this is kind of like, a, this is going to be a super nerd question for disaster researchers, but a lot of them listen. And so, you know, you, you're a very unique scholar in that you have expertise in, again, uh, Latin America, it, Southeast Asia, United States, continental Europe. And not only that, you're the only person I've talked to in the last couple of months who's actually been in multiple continents in this period of time. I've been having this discussion with my colleague, Kim Fortune, who's an anthropologist at, at UC Irvine, about the tension from a research perspective right now, of how much attention we should be paying to, to national stories, like United States, UK, Italy, versus the transnational story, and trying to understand this pandemic. When we talk about doing global disaster research, that term is thrown around a lot. That's an incredibly like, what exactly does that mean? That's incredibly hard to carry off. What kind of categories do you look at to span those yeah. continents? And so I know you haven't started any, well, not that I'm aware of, have started any formal research projects right now about COVID-19, or maybe you have, but uh, we haven't talked about them. But I, I'm sort of wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own thinking here. As a person who's, who's interested and familiar with disaster governance in these different national settings, I'm worried, I don't know if that national level analysis is going to illuminate the full complexity of COVID-19. So it, it's not a very well-formed question. It's more just sort of want to get your sense of yeah, the challenges yeah. of the researcher in this moment who's got a global yeah. purview and wants to tell the COVID-19 story. Yeah. Well, uh, let's say that in this month, I've been mainly interested in three countries that are Ecuador, Italy, and uh, uh, and UK, um, of course, um, it's. I, I cannot say I know everything about this country. Probably I just know the surface. However, what I really found is that there are, of course, a lot of local specificities, particularly in Ecuador, that is a Latin America country that has a lot of differences uh, with Italy and uh, and UK, and uh, in. Even though, of course, it's a tragedy because it's a global tragedy where we all are inside, I think that from a political point of view, you know, how the politics at, at uh, multi-level and multi-scale politics uses the pandemic for political propaganda, for um, nationalism, rhetoric, or just for their own purpose, uh, it's really fascinating. So don't um, uh, don't misjudge me. I know the fascinating is not the right term, but I'm just saying within uh, you know within this tragedy, I think that 
um, investigating uh, the language of politics and how politics uses the pandemic uh, was very, very interesting from, you know, from a, from a disaster uh, research. Also because it has a lot of consequences on vulnerability and on disaster risk reduction. So are not just empty words, but they are absolutely crucial to understand uh, what happens in terms of disaster risk reduction in the country and what happens to the most vulnerable people. Of course, there are general trends that are exactly the use of the pandemic in a political way and not political political way in the sense of discussing among people or you know the good political way, but the bad political way, so the political propaganda. So I think this is one of the patterns. And the second one is that uh, the, the most vulnerable are still are always the one who suffer more. So uh, as you say, uh, there should be a transnational understanding of the global pandemic, but we will need years. We will need years because we still don't know what happens in, for example, in, in some countries in Africa. We also don't know if the numbers are real everywhere. Probably they are not real. For example, I think in Italy, probably in March, April, May, the numbers were a little bit uh, underestimated. There were some numbers more. We don't know if the numbers in China are real. I don't know. We don't know if the U.S. numbers are real or there are problems in counting. And the same with Latin America. With Latin America, so the the understanding should be transnational. However, I I still think that we need to understand what happens in each country because we don't know yet. And so I think we will need time because we will have a clear understanding just when everything will finish. So right now, unfortunately, we are still in the middle of the pandemic. So probably our minds are not very lucid, how to say. So, for example, I see a lot of publications about COVID-19. I'm very happy about this. And of course, there is you know, this, this, uh, uh, you know, this dialogue that is going on. Um, however, I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, uh, I think we still need time to clear, clearly understand what's going, what, what is going on. Probably we will need years to have some clearer ideas. But yes, the analysis should be transnational, transnational, and there are patterns that are, of course, uh, we we always know the 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 most affected are the most vulnerable, and also how there is the capitalist use of this. Uh, pandemic by profit, profiters, political elites, financial elites. Those are the main patterns, but yeah, we need time to understand better. I mean, even in, in your answer there, I thought you, you've given three very important um, modes of learning that it seems like scholars are gonna need to pick up right away uh, in, a, in this transnational mode. One is the way that sort of language of the pandemic has been weaponized politically in every, everywhere around the world, but in these quite unique, important, you know, importantly, local and contextual settings. Yeah, absolutely, um, yes. That seems, that seems really important. Also, the difficulty of national and subnational accounting, um, you know, which unfortunately has then gotten wrapped up in misinformation and, and concerted disinformation campaigns um, in lots of cases. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess the other, the, you sort of hinted at this earlier, but the other area that I wonder what you think about is possibility in this moment for the institutions that have as their purview international disaster risk reduction, like 
United Nations or other larger foundations. Do you, what are you expecting out of those institutions to the extent that you think about them? Do you, do you think this is going to revise the way? Is, gonna, is this going to breathe new life into some of these discussions of international disaster risk reduction, or do you think not? Yeah, well, as a, as a scholar, I have also always this tension between thinking positive and thinking negative. So I usually I don't think very positive about uh, international institutions, but probably being a scholar also means using this Gramscian attitude that uh, you know uh, pessimism of uh, uh, of the of the um, of the rational, but optimism of the will. So let's let's try to keep positive and let's think that things can change. Uh, however, I want to say something. For example, probably a couple of months ago, I seen a tweet by the UNDRR that was doing probably uh, uh, I don't remember a leaflet or something like this, a sort of initiative for Italian. Uh, private sector to build resilience in face of the pandemic. And they, uh, in this tweet, there was, it was written that this uh, leaflet or this initiative was in, I don't want to say collaboration, probably there was a small partnership by uh, the, Conf the Italian Confindustria. So I was thinking, okay, so the Italian Confindustria did pressure not to shut down the main industries and the private sector in Italy. So it, it, uh, it supported the, the spread of the, of, the, of the infection rather than building resilience of the private sector. So, you know, uh, it's, it's always difficult to, uh, to have a clear understanding of what, of what is happening in, in the country and which are your partners when you are trying to do something for, for, for a country. So, um, uh, uh, as I mentioned, I, th I hope that international organizations can do something. However, I also think that we need to start to, I don't want to say to get, ri get rid of these international organizations, but also to remake a new way of living on the earth without these organizations and probably try to do, to do disaster risk reduction in a, in a, in a different way without them telling us what to do. Of course, they, at, at this current stage, the global democracy, they are still important, but I really hope we can do, I think that we are better than this. So, but yes, they are important. So let's hope that they will change their minds. So. Giuseppe Farino, we need more researchers like you who, who can look at the lo local and all have this global purview. Thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today, and I hope it's all right. If I come back to you in a couple of months, we'll be wanting to check in and see how, yeah, how things sure. are going with your research and how things are going in Italy there. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And tomorrow we'll be having a discussion with Dana Green and some of her collaborators in a Converge project about COVID-19 and stresses on the family. So be sure to join us for that, 5 o'clock tomorrow Eastern time. Uh, Giuseppe, stay healthy. We hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. Take care. Stay healthy, Thanks. everyone. Bye -bye. See you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.